So my wife reminded me that, uh, to remind you guys that we're still collecting uh, funds to help for shipping costs on the boxes as well. So there's already a lot that's come in already, but if you would like to give to that, that's another thing that you can continue to give to as well. So, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, most of us are, uh, uh, we have this aversion sometimes to, to the law. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I hesitate to ask anyone to raise hands, but uh, how many, you know, may have uh, maybe been out past 10 o'clock last night? <laughs> uh, you know, I think, you know, there's something about us as human beings that, you know, we really want our freedoms, right? You know, we really want to, you know, stand on, you know, I can do what I want kind of perspective. And so certain laws that come, you know, you get some of us are more this way than others, right? You know, and you hear somebody tell you to do something and you like just automatically are like, eh, I want to do the opposite, right? And, uh, and it's just kind of part of, I think, being human. Uh, but also, I think most of us recognize that there is blessing in law, right? You know, that, you know, to have justice is important, right? And to have a, a set of rules is important that, cu that culture and society is living by. Uh, that, that law is something that allows us to enjoy peace and justice. And so, what leads then is that if we, if we have this automatic rebellion to law, but at the same time we recognize the goodness of law, then the question comes, so how do we determine what is a good law and what is a bad law? How do we understand and discern those realities and flesh it out? Uh, I, I think even more specifically, how do Christians live in a biblically-based nation but not a Christian nation. How do we walk this line of abiding by God's law, yet living in a nation that doesn't necessarily abide by all of God's law? And so this morning, as our final message in this series on good citizens... I want to take a moment to look at the rule of law and specifically how we as Christians can navigate this tension. And I also want to say at the outset, this is not, this is not easy. I really don't think there's black and white in this particular topic how we as Christians navigate our lives in America. How do we be good American citizens at the same time as we are good heavenly citizens? In regards to law, there's a lot of tension here. And so uh, maybe more so than any of the previous messages in this series, I, I really want you to understand that um, I I wanna, I'm trying to allow for a lot of gray in this. I give some of my opinions maybe a little bit later, and I'm actually still even debating in my mind if I'm going to give a couple of things. It's like, eh, I don't know, we'll see. But, uh, but I, I, I want you to not to hear that this is a dogmatic, this is God's word kind of approach, right? I think there's some room for tension and for different perspectives on this. 
And, and so, but I do think it's important for us at least to kind of wrestle with it a little bit and understand maybe where those tensions lie. All right, so that's where we're headed. So good luck, right? Let's have fun. Um, and I will, I'll say this one more thing. Uh, this is a huge topic. Uh, we could, I could do at least a month probably of messages on the rule of law and how we interact with that as Christians and as Americans. Um, and it's, so this was one of the struggles I had this week was, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to, fo- what am I going to focus on this? Right. And, uh, cause there, I went like three or four different directions <laughs> before I finally like, okay, this is where we're headed. So you should see all my notes. I got like 10 pages of notes because I went this way. No, now that's not going to work. And went this way. Now that's not going to work. So anyway, it was crazy, but so there's a lot here. And so I'm just going to, we're just going to be scratching the surface of one little piece of it. And, and we'll just take that, uh, for what it is and, and may the Lord use it to bring glory to himself and may it encourage us as well. So first of all, biblical law. I want to read a passage just really quick. Uh, Psalm uh, 19 um, is just another, you know, one of these amazing chapters in the Bible. Psalm 19, I'm going to focus on verses 7 through 11. So let me read that and then we'll discuss kind of what it's talking about here. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they, they are they, excuse me, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Uh, great chapter, worshiping God's law, God's word. This is the, the context of biblical understanding of law, that, that it is worthy of worship, that, it's, that it is amazing and good, that it's true, that it's right, that it's life-giving, it's an encouragement. We are, according to God's word, called to fully obey God's law. Not because simply it's a list of do's and don'ts, not just simply because God says do this, but because it is how we can enjoy the, bo- the best possible life on this earth. God's law are the parameters that he set, that are, that are uh, set in the foundations of creation that are meant, are there to help us to understand what those limits are so that we can fully enjoy our existence. God always has what's best in mind for us. And so God's law is not about trying to ruin our fun. It's about trying to bless us to be good to us, to love us. 
It is true that God's law reveals His will. His, you know, what's right and what's wrong. This is what God's law does. It helps us to know, okay, who, you know, how should I respond in this situation? What is the right answer or the wrong answer? And there's a lot of Scripture that speaks to a lot of life that, we can, that can help to set the direction of our life and the decisions that we make, revealing, again, God's will. And understand that all of God's law is meant to be obeyed. All of it, not just a portion of it, all of it. Now, we as New Testament Christians, right, we can oftentimes look at the Old Testament law and we want to throw it out. But that's not what we get from Scripture. I mean, God doesn't just give law for a period of time. Okay, here's some law for you, and just because, you know, this is special for you, but not something that would be universal for all time. Now, certainly there's some of the Old Testament law that doesn't have direct correlation to our life, but all of God's law has principles in it that we need to seek to understand so that we can then apply it to our life. God's law is also meant to be obeyed both externally and internally. The amazing words of Jesus that, that rocked the Jewish world in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, but I say, over and over again, you've heard it, it's just external obedience to God's law. But no, 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 I'm telling you, it's also about the heart. And so God's law is meant to be, all of it meant to be obeyed externally and internally. But again, as actually Laura mentioned just a minute ago, the motivation for obedience to God's law is not fear. It's not God standing over us and saying, you shall obey. The motivation for obedience is love. God first showing us his amazing love for us and all that he has done, his con continued pursuit of us, his unwillingness to give up, to continue to be faithful in we, even when we are unfaithful, to continue to pursue us, to send his son to die on the cross for us, to resurrect from that death and open up the doorway for a reconciled relationship. Obedience from God is never forced. It's requested. God says, will you obey me? It's covenant. We talked about this in the first message. It's covenant. God doesn't come down and force. He's not a dictator. He doesn't come down and force everyone to obey. He says, I've done all of these amazing things for you. I love you. Does, can you. Can't you tell that I love you? Will you choose to surrender, to be obedient to me? Will you surrender your life to me? Obedience is never coerced by God. It's enticed. He says, look at this, how much I love you. Don't you realize all of these things that I'm asking you to surrender to, to obey to, they're going to make your life better. 
I love you. I have a good plan for your life. And so obedience, our obedience to God is, uh, is the proper and loving response to God's love expressed towards us. Interestingly, in Scripture, in, in two passages that you need to read, not necessarily right now, although if you want to go for it, but um, it might be more exciting than listening to me, so go, go. Or maybe you can do both. Some, you know, younger generation, they can multitask. It's amazing. I mean, I oftentimes, when I was teaching, you know, as a youth pastor, I'd like looking at some kiddies messing around, and I'm like, well, you're not paying, what did I just say? And they like quote it right back to me. I'm like, oh, dang. <laughs> Wish I could do that. Um, anyway, Romans 4 the whole chapter, and Galatians 3, the whole chapter, are uh, really amazing chapters of the Bible in regards to law, and so I'd encourage you, when you get a chance to read, I'm going to read a little bit of Romans 4, just the first five verses. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The amazing thing about God's law is that before the law was promise. Abraham and Moses and even Israel, there's this sense of promise that comes first. Now, Abraham was 400-some years before the law was even given, and yet... He is described as righteous. And, and this is the point of Romans 4 and Galatians 3 is saying, the reason that he is righteous is because our righteousness comes not from obedience to the law, but through surrender to God. Uh, the, the choice of faith to trust God. Abraham believed God, and it's counted to him as righteousness. It's not about what he did, it's about what he chose. And so I think what we see in here, this is what I want to draw out, this understanding first of all, that the promise came first. Our salvation is not by the law. Again, we know this, we're New Testament Christians, right? Uh, and, and we understand grace, right? And so we grab onto that, but I just want to reiterate it one more time, that our salvation is not according to our works. It's not according to our ability to uh, be righteous in our acts or even in our hearts. It's based on our choice to surrender. And so what I think there is, is there's this twofold nature, I think, of righteousness. The first is the salvation type of righteousness which we enter when we believe Jesus. 
when we surrender our life to him and declare him as Lord, then we have his righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Jesus placed on us. And that's an eternal righteousness. However, there's also a secondary righteousness, which is, I would say, a temporal righteousness, which is what happens in sanctification, is when we begin to enjoy more fully this relationship that we have with God by beginning to experience righteousness, beginning to live that out. But our temporal righteousness has no bearing on our eternal righteousness. And our eternal righteousness does not demand or does not suggest that we have no need of temporal righteousness. Again, obedience is the proper response, the proper loving response to a God who has loved us. What we learn in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 is that law, because then Paul's like, okay, so what's the point of the law, right? I mean, if Abraham was righteous by believing only, if it was just about faith, then why do we even have the law? Is it pointless? And he says, no, 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 the law is important as well. And the reason it's important is the law exposes our sinfulness and our lostness. Without the law, we wouldn't know that we are not measuring up to God. We wouldn't know that there's some other way. We wouldn't know that we're sinful, that we're lost. But the law was never meant to save us. It was never meant to make us holy. If it could do those things, we wouldn't need Jesus. Instead, they were meant to be a sign of our sinfulness and for us as Christians Uh, uh, the parameters, the limits of understanding what God's will is and how to live and walk in that. So people, every human being, is allowed to freely choose. And this is where we're going to transition now into American law here in a moment. But people are allowed to freely choose. They can freely reject God and make no commitment to His law or to be obedient to Him and His will. Again, God doesn't force it. He doesn't say, okay, I created you, so now you have to do what I tell you. No, he allows each and every one of us to make that free choice. But that doesn't mean that judgment doesn't still come based on the law. See, they are free to reject that law, but at some point in their life, they will be judged in accordance to that law and mainly because of their rejection of God. You see, without Jesus, their only hope of salvation is perfection according to the law. And at the end of time, as God looks at their record, the evidence that they've failed will be their failure to live up to God's law. All right. So with that understanding of God's law, now we can move into American law, right? So uh, the the American legal system is founded on biblical principles as well. 
we see the concepts of even justice, of how we come to justice, uh, kind of fleshed out in Scripture. Uh, innocent until proven guilty. Like, that's a biblical concept. Uh, be, uh, being guilty beyond the shadow of a doubt, that's a biblical concept. Having more than one witness, right? It's not just he said, she said. You've got to have multiple witnesses, two witnesses at least, right? This is, these are American legal justice principles that came out of Scripture. Uh, also, the fact that they're all truth-based you know, evidence, you know, trying to figure out what is truth, what are the facts, how to know whether or not this person is actually guilty by figuring out, you know, all the different facts and what, you know, how do we know that, right? What, what, what actually happened? So we see that our law in America is founded on these biblical principles, but most importantly, all of it is based on the transcendent morality that God offers. In other words, you know, again, looking at the, uh, the, the uh, Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, right? Uh, it, it is pointing to, it's not seeing our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence isn't saying, hey, you know, we as a bunch of people got together, we thought these are really good ideas. This seems like rights that people should have, and so we're just going to write these down. Now, they're, they're appealing to a transcendent morality that is set by God. It is God that says that these are the rights of men, not just us as human beings or as a society. And so this is really important. Our, our, our constitutional system, our legal system, America is not just a man-made idea. It's not just based on some, oh, this, you know, over you know, trial and error, this seems to work best. No, this is based on the teachings and perspectives of God, a transcendent being, which means that the morality cannot be rejected, that it's not dependent. We can't just change it over time. We can't just go, oh, you know, we've kind of, we've, we've developed, we've matured, we know more now. And so these old laws are kind of, they're out, you know, we're, we've got new ideas now, right? We can't do that because we're, again, appealing to a transcendent moral being who has gave us these perspectives. However, Although American law is founded on biblical principles and these realities, it is not founded on being a Christian. You don't have to believe in God in order to be a good American. The reality is, is that even a atheist can logically accept the value of inalienable rights. They don't have to believe in God to say, okay, this kind of makes sense. I, I mean, I don't believe in creator that there's some, you know, uh, you know, in, you know transcendent being. I, I do believe, though, that the, the rights that they outline are good things, and I'm going to choose to abide by those. It's as if in some sense, and this is an oversimplification for sure and not fully true, but it's in some sense that America focuses on the second half of the Ten Commandments and not the first. So if you know the Ten Commandments, the first four are about our relationship with God. No other gods, no idols, don't swear by his name, and uh, Sabbath, right? That's, that's relationship between us and God. The last six 
or the love your neighbor portion where, okay, this is, you know, don't steal, you know, don't murder, don't adultery, you know, lust, uh, you know, lying and those kind of things, okay? So, or not lust, but um, covet. Uh, anyway, so it's almost like uh, uh, when the founders were creating American legal system, they said, hey, we're going to focus just on the loving your neighbor part of scripture, but not the loving God part of scripture. We're going to leave that out. If you do believe in God, you can submit to this law as well. Even though we as Christians, we take all ten, we're going to love God and love our neighbor. As Americans, the expectation in our country is that you only love your neighbor. And so this law that we find in America, this constitution, if you will, is considered to be the highest authority in the land. It's the law that is the highest authority, not God. Now, for Christians, the highest authority is God. He is sovereign. He's the one that we pursue. He's the one we listen to each day. He's the one that we follow. But in America, the highest authority is the law. Every citizen pledges allegiance to the law, not God. We American Christians need to remember this. Too often, we expect our fellow Americans who don't believe in God to act like they do believe in God. Too often we expect morality from them that is at such a level that, we, that, that that's what Christians do. We need to understand this tension, and this is a tension. This is a constitutional tension, the separation of church and state. This, this is probably one of the hardest pieces of maintaining America, of maintaining this constitution we have. It's the first time in the history of mankind that a nation was, tried to set up a system like this that was going to allow for religious freedom, but wasn't going to allow that religious freedom to take over and make everybody believe it. You know, there was this tension that was created in the constitution that we're going to be free to live however we want within these limits. But no one has to be a Christian, but you can be a Christian. Basically, the tension is this, that we must maintain a transcendent perspective on the law. This is a reality. If we get rid of a transcendent perspective of the law, even if atheists throw that out, okay, then the law becomes wishy-washy. Now we can begin to change it. Because we, you know, it's just, that's just man-made. We can change, you know, they're not perfect. They're not, you know, that's not transcendent. That we can, you know, that always is changing. And so if we, we have to maintain that transcendent perspective on the law, the atheist has to allow for the belief in this transcendent morality. They don't have to believe it, but they have to allow for it. And a matter of fact, America will not continue to be America that it is if a large portion of our population no longer believes in the transcendent morality of our nation, of our laws. 
So we must maintain that transcendent perspective of law, but we also, and this is the tension, must refuse to demand everyone believe in that transcendent being. The Christian has to allow for the immoral life to exist freely. We can't try to legalize it out of commission. We are seeing this reality and have seen it in our nation for years. How the atheist, the humanist, the hedonist, trying to get church and religion out of their, their, their nation. You know, this is just wrong. We can't have you believing those things and bringing... If you want to be a Christian, fine, but just keep it on Sundays or keep it in your house. Don't bring it out into the public. You can't live that way. You can't have your business run that way. You can't be in politics that way. No, you got to leave that. So we got that side that's pushing Christianity and religion out of the way. And then you got the Christians on the other side. They're saying, no, you can't believe these horrible immoral things. You've got to stop living like this. It says in scripture that you need to love God and you need to love these things. And so we have this tension going back and forth, and in essence, the Constitution set up that tension. And we need to allow that tension to exist without trying to get rid of the other side. Because if Christianity does end up getting rid of all of the atheists in America and forces everyone to be a Christian, then we're no longer going to be America. Now, some may want that. Some may think that's the best scenario without recognizing it's a violation of the covenant that we've all made to one another in America. This is not what we promised. We promised that we would uphold this law, this constitution that allows for this tension. Now here's, um, yeah, I'll just, uh, I'm going to go on a limb and you guys are going to hate me, but that's okay. Um, just, I want to give some practical examples, just, I want to give two, um, just to say, this is not from a Christian perspective, right? I mean, this is the separation that we have to find, right? We are Christians always, we always live out our Christian life, but what do we expect in America, right? And the America expectations are different than our Christian perspectives. In a moment, I'm going to talk about what we do as a church, right? How we, what we live up to as a church, we live up to the whole, you know, God, you know, the whole gospel, the whole, you know, law. That's what we do as a church. But as Americans, you know, when we're interacting with other Americans, we got to allow for that freedom to, they're not Christians, right? They're not going to follow the whole law. And so two kind of hot button issues in our world that I want to just give an opinion on that is, this seems to be the case. And, and maybe someday I will change my opinion on this. But, uh, and so I don't, again, this is not black and white. I think this is pretty gray. Legalizing gay marriage, it doesn't seem like that violates the Constitution. It violates God's law, as we as Christians. But, but I, I don't know that it violates the Constitution, America's law. Now, I'm not... Well, I'm just going to leave it there. Criminalizing non-participation in gay marriage seems like to me that does violate the Constitution. In other words, force people to be involved in that gay marriage. 
forcing businesses to make cakes or to do flowers or do photographs of a gay marriage when it goes against their religious perspective. That seems to violate the Constitution. Legalizing abortion also seems to violate the Constitution, the right to life. And criminalizing participation in abortion doesn't seem to violate the Constitution because, again, it's a right to life issue. And so we, these kind of things, uh, it takes wisdom, it takes discernment. That living out our Christianity in America, that is a, an awesome nation, the best nation that has ever existed, the freedoms that we have here, the rights that we have, the, uh, the amazing you know, unity that can come in this nation, and, and the amazing things that we've done, the wealth that we've produced, all of these amazing... I mean, the missionary movement was launched out of America, right? I mean, we have seen the world, the countries around the world come to Christ because of the freedoms we have in America. And so this is an awesome nation. We have an awesome God. And so how do we discern this reality of this tension, right? How much do we make America Christian versus how much do we allow for freedom and for people to just make that choice of whether they're going to accept Jesus or not freely? It takes a lot of discernment on these laws and these freedoms in which way to go. But understand, I think, that most of all, we must respect one another. We as Christians, we need to stand firm that we believe sin is wrong. Whether it's illegal or not doesn't matter. We as Christians have to stand up on God's word when we're talking about God's word, right? When we're, when we're interacting with people about Christianity, yes, it's clear, this is what God says. But we also have to love them in the midst of that. We have to accept them that they're not there yet. All right. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not doing too bad, right? Okay, just one last point. So, Christians in America living by God's law. Yeah, I'm going to read this. Okay, 1 Corinthians 5. Verses 9 and following. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning sexually immoral, the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. You'd have to get out of here, right? You couldn't avoid it. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. So two points. One, Paul is saying to the church, hey, you know, don't deal with brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, or deal with them, but don't, don't hang out with brothers and sisters in Christ who are not following God's law. If they're just totally rejecting God's law and they're just living as, as sinfully and just you know, blatantly sinfully, you should, they should not be a part of your fellowship. Matter of fact, if, they, you know, if you keep on, keep on reading, it says, you know, expel the immoral brother. 
So they, you know, he's, Paul's dealing with the church here. They're allowing this sinfulness to happen in their church, and they're celebrating. And he's like, no, 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 that, get that out. We're not doing that. As Christians in the church, we have a morality that we are going to live by and strive for. Not that we're perfect in that, but that's what we're striving for. We're not just kind of throwing out God's law that doesn't matter. We're going to wrestle with it. We're going to wrestle with sin. We're going to fail, yeah, but we're going to keep on wrestling with it. But notice what he starts with. He says, but I'm not talking about people of the world. I'm not saying don't associate with them. No, 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 no. We need to take the gospel to them. They need Jesus. They need to be saved. We as Christians in America, it's not about transforming America into a Christian nation. It's about us reaching out to the individuals in our world who don't know Jesus and loving on them. You see, we humbly should be pursuing laws that promote biblical morality. We should humbly promote those kind of things. But understand this reality. We do it humbly because even Christians cannot even decide or agree on which ones should are, are moral or right or wrong, right? I mean, alcohol, right? I mean, some say, oh, that should be outlawed in all over the world, right? Others say, well, alcohol's not a big deal. What are you talking about? Movies, right? I mean, think about movies. I mean, should we, should we just outlaw all you know, rated R movies? Well, how far do you go? I mean, maybe it's PG-13. We should get rid of those, right? There's no, so there's no agreement even among Christians on how to you know, exercise these, these issues, right? So we need to humbly pursue laws that promote biblical morality in our world. But we need to boldly pursue sinners who don't know Jesus. They're the ones we need to reach not by judging them before they even hear the name of Jesus. We shouldn't be looking down on the unbeliever because of their sin. It's their sin that reveals their lostness. They're the ones we should be pursuing. All right, worship team, come up. Just a couple more thoughts, as they do. To be clear, I, th- I think in conclusion, Christianity, Jesus transforms the individual life first. He transforms the heart, and then obedience comes. This translates into a strategy of the church in changing our culture. We pursue the individual heart first, because until that individual person has surrendered to Jesus, there's no hope of them living out the Christian life. Sometimes we as Christians in America get confused and we think the key to us becoming a Christian nation is through changing our laws to make it so that everyone has to obey God's law. Instead of giving them the same freedom that God gave us, 
by saying, no, 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 your righteousness first and foremost is based on your surrender to me. You see, they're not going to live out that life for Christ until they hear about Christ. This is the goal of us as a church. Inside our walls, we're going to be holding each other accountable, encouraging each and every one of us to live up to God's law as best we can. But outside of these walls, we're looking for the worst among us in essence, the sinners among us, in order to bring them the love of Jesus. Because they need it. Because we believe that God's law is meant to bless us. And if they're not following it, that means they're not experiencing his blessings. All right. God is good. He's working. He's doing his thing. Inspiring us. Continuing to draw us to the lost people in our world. All right, church, let's stand and we'll sing a song or two and then I'll come back and close with a passage. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for this nation that we live in that does allow us to freely live our, our Christian life. And we can freely follow Jesus wherever he leads. Thank you for the foundation of this nation that was so clearly founded on your word in so many different ways. Lord, that allows us again to to not have to worry too much, even though recently there's some more tensions here, that we don't have to worry about the nation or the leaders forcing us to do things that go against what you teach. Lord, that we have those freedoms to just live out and worship you however we feel like you're leading us to. But also, Lord, we, I think partly because of our love for others, sometimes we try to force people into your kingdom instead of just loving them into your kingdom. Help us to do that. I, I thank you, Lord, that we are a church that is so good at loving not only each other, but those in the world. Help us to continue to do that. Lord, continue to give us eyes to see those around us who, who don't know you. And that, Lord, we would especially be concerned for them, that we would especially reach out to them. Lord, it's so easy for us just to maybe sometimes say, I, I want to spend time with the people that are easy, that I know, that I, that I already love, that I'm really close with and friends with and can trust. Lord, it's sometimes it's, you want us to go to those people that are uncomfortable. So give us the courage to do that. The eyes to see, the heart for your, uh, 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 for the, uh, a passion for the lost, and then the courage to step out. Lord, especially now, it's amazing with the, the rise in cases around the globe. Lord, the fear is back. People are looking for answers again. Those who haven't already turned to you in this year are now seeking. So Lord, this is a prime time for us who know you, us who have the truth, us who have your love to be able to share that with others. So Lord, help us to be aware, even more so now than maybe normally, recognizing even at the grocery store, or wherever we may be, or neighborhood, family gatherings, those that may be desperate right now, looking for hope.
Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, we, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless. Thanks, church. Have a great day.